Welcome to the In Defense of Children podcast, a space for youth defenders. I had been at DRT only a few years when we became aware of what we called boxes, the school called rooms. They were three by three built out of plywood in a particular school system where they would segregate the children and isolate them in those what I call boxes. They had swing locks on them. It was horrific. These were fifth graders and there were 12 of these in a particular school system. We are Christina Kleiser, Assistant Public Defender, Kristen Anderson, Juvenile Law Attorney, and Kashana Lattimore, Assistant Public Defender. And we are on a mission to build our community of defenders and raise the level of practice we bring on behalf of children thrust into the delinquency system. With each episode, our goal is to bring the experts and other defender specialists to educate and inspire us to be better defenders each and every day we walk into the courtroom and to learn more about the policy issues facing Tennessee's court-involved children. We want a world where policymakers rely on data and science rather than their gut. And so we hope that this adds to their understanding. Welcome back to the In Defense of Children podcast. You're here with Kristen Anderson. And today we're going to be going into the topic of defending kids with disabilities. The disproportionate representation of incarcerated kids with disabilities is increasingly recognized as an urgent national problem across the country. Three to five times as many youth with disabilities are involved with the courts compared to the general public school population. So I find that a lot of youth defenders collaterally understand some aspects of this issue due to it coming up so often in our practices, but we don't always understand the nuances of the protections surrounding children with disabilities. So I wanted to invite some experts to talk with us about the rights afforded to our clients with these disabilities and how we can be better prepared to enforce those rights, whether that be demanding manifestation hearings at a child's school or in advocating for the services they are entitled to in detention facilities and in juvenile justice placements and beyond. So today we have with us Sherry Wilds and Daniel Ellis from Disability Rights Tennessee. I will let them tell you a little bit more about their organization in just a few minutes, but a little bit about them. Sherry is their assistant legal director and director of pro bono and legal interns. She primarily handles special education and disability discrimination cases, which arise under the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehab Act, and with an emphasis on systemic issues here in Tennessee. Daniel is one of Disability Rights Tennessee's staff attorneys who provides legal oversight for investigations and monitoring of various facilities, as well as serving as plaintiff's counsel in federal, state, administrative for both individual and systemic cases of discrimination against those with disabilities. So, Sherry, Daniel, we're excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So, Daniel, I'll start with you. Could you give our listeners a little bit more background on how you got into this work? Certainly. I grew up in East Tennessee. I guess that my basic introduction to disability rights law was growing up as a child with attention deficit disorder, with executive functioning deficits, and with a younger sister who was the one who tied my shoes. 
it was through the reasonable accommodations process and 504 plans that I was able to be successful in school, in addition to some zealous advocacy by parents and family members. But the ADA and the IDEA really made it possible for me to be an advocate for other people with disabilities. That personal experience is super cool. I did not know that about you. So Sherry, how do you get into this work? Well, I think I was always interested in working with people with disabilities. My parents had had a child before I was born with cerebral palsy, who unfortunately passed away at age 18 months, a few years before I was born. So I always knew that I had a brother that I never got to know named Nikki, who had cerebral palsy. And in high school, I volunteered with Special Olympics and then decided I wanted to be a teacher and teach in special education. And I did that for 10 years in public schools and then got a master's in curriculum and instruction. And then that wasn't enough schooling and decided to go to law school. And then I I worked at Vanderbilt at the psychiatric hospital and saw the needs of children who had mental illness and that their needs were not being met in school settings and in the community and, and with the supports they needed. What was it exactly that catalyzed your decision to go to law school from, you know, being a teacher for so many years? Well, I had thought of going into administration in schools and decided that was not for me. And in special education, there's so many legal aspects to it when you're a teacher. And I got very interested in maybe helping people with disabilities learn to help themselves and also to help them in a way that was even different than the classroom, which was helping them protect their rights and their civil rights. Absolutely. And here you are. Here I am. So before we dive further into this topic, I want to be really clear for our listeners. Could you actually break down what we mean when we're talking about, quote, disability? I think that a lot of people think of someone who is blind or bound to a wheelchair or something. It's a lot more than that. And so I want to make sure we have that definition out there for our listeners. Certainly. Those two examples you gave uh, do fit the definition of disability, but the term disability means, with respect to an individual, a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. The individual would need to have a record of the impairment, or they could even be regarded as having such an impairment. That's the ADA's definition as set forth there. A major life activity includes a lot of things that I don't think people always consider, such as concentrating, thinking, communicating, working, learning, standing, digestive bowel disorders, immune system, if your immune system is compromised, normal cell growth, neurological, endocrine, and, and even reproductive functions. So what you're saying is it encompasses everything from physical disabilities to even mental health issues, learning disabilities. Does it include all of that? Excellent point. We can think of both visible and invisible disabilities. And one thing that's becoming more commonplace is to talk about neurotypical versus neurodivergent. And there are some really wonderful kind of peer support groups that are providing community for people who may have immunocompromised conditions or attention deficit disorder or other invisible disabilities. So you said neurotypical. Could you explain what that actually means? It's a new term for me. I'm not sure that it's much of a legal definition as more of a a cultural term that we see used a lot nowadays. And so that would mean that someone who may have a disability in terms of how they think differently, a person with autism or another neurological condition that might not be visible, might be considered neurodivergent as indifferent from the norm. But there are disability is, is really just a term for different abilities. 
Absolutely. So you mentioned the ADA, and I think that's the Americans with Disabilities Act. I'm also familiar with Section 504 of the Rehab Act. Sherry, could you go into what those protections mean for individuals with disabilities? Certainly. What they mean is that basically people with disabilities have a right to access programs and services and facilities. And that access might mean that there needs to be a reasonable accommodation or modification made so that they can access these services. An example case that DRT handled many years ago was Lane versus Tennessee, and that had to do with access to courthouses. We had many courthouses in our state that were not accessible to people with mobility disabilities, lots of stairs, no elevators, and they could not access the court program. That lawsuit went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it was held that we could file a suit against the different counties for not having accessible courthouses. And so now when you go across Tennessee, hopefully your courthouse is accessible and people who are in wheelchairs can get to court. But it has to do with being able to access program and services and the reasonable accommodations and modifications that may need to be made in order to do that. Another federal law that we are very involved in is the IDEIA, which is Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, and that has to do with special education and the right of children with disabilities to have what's called a FAPE, free appropriate public education. So are these all of the ADA, the Section 504, the IDEA, are these all specific to protections for children or does it apply to everyone? The ADA and Section 504 applies to everyone. Section 504 has to do with programs and facilities that get federal funding. The ADA is a little broader than that. And there's Title II and Title III. And Title II has to do with government entities. Title III is more private businesses. IDEA is for schools. So it's people that are in public schools. And that's not always children because in special education, if they do not graduate with a regular diploma by age 18, they can actually stay in school and get services till the year of their 22nd birthday. So what do you all do at Disability Rights of Tennessee to utilize these different protections and laws to advocate for those with disabilities? Well, we both advocate and we investigate whether it is an adult or a child being served by a service provider in the community or in a facility. We investigate and monitor those types of facilities. Those are include but are not limited to schools, group homes, jails, prisons, mental health treatment centers, hospitals, assistive living facilities. In addition to that, we provide a lot of other services, such as we assist with access to the voting process, a ramp to go into a polling place might be an essential thing to have if you're a person who uses a wheelchair and you need to vote, access to assistive technology. We have several programs that assist with employment that is through our client assistance program. We also educate legislators and we engage in direct legal representation as well as systemic legal representation as an associational plaintiff. The PNA actually has standing to bring actions on behalf of all Tennesseans with disabilities. We have a 10-care helpline that assists callers with issues related to choices, ECF choices, and Katie Beckett benefits. You mentioned a PNA. What, what is a PNA? Oh, certainly. So 
Disability Rights Tennessee is a protection and advocacy system in the state of Tennessee. We are not affiliated with the state of Tennessee. We are independent from the state of Tennessee. Every state in the United States and every United States territory has a protection and advocacy system. If you'd like, I can tell you a little bit about the background of the PNA system. Absolutely. So in 1965, Senator Robert Kennedy paid an unannounced visit to a facility in Staten Island, New York, called a Willowbrook State School. After he left the facility, he described the residents as living in filth and dirt, their clothing in rags, in rooms less comfortable and cheerful than cages in which we put animals in a zoo. He went on to describe the institution as a snake pit, but that was 1965. And the sad thing is, Nothing substantially happened at that point. It took until 1973 when ABC News cameras exposed filthy conditions inside the Willowbrook State School to lead to a lawsuit that led to Congress passing the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act in 1975. This led to the creation of the nationwide protection and advocacy system. So really, it was the photographic and video evidence that galvanized a nation's conscience and led to the creation of the PNA system. So you mentioned that every state has established some type of PNA system and you all investigate these facilities. What does that look like? No, that's a great question. So the, the difficulty is, of course, we're a small nonprofit and we cover all of Tennessee from Memphis to Mountain City. We can both do routine investigation and we can also do specific investigations. We have access to individuals, service providers, and facilities. We might get a complaint from an individual. We are required to keep that complaint confidential. We then have the ability to go to a facility. Usually, we would have one of our trained investigators go to the facility, usually a non-lawyer, but sometimes our lawyers will be the point person on investigations. They will notify the facility staff, explain to them who we are, go in, interview the individual in a confidential environment. Usually facilities will set aside a room or place where we can meet with the individual. We'll gather records either by releases signed by the individual, if they're competent or their legal guardian or conservator. And in instances where there is no legal guardian or conservator and, and in certain circumstances apply, the PNA has a special access authority to get those records and advocate for people who are essentially wards of the state in, in some instances or without an advocate in other instances. So when these reports come up, you know, potential issues within these facilities, why can't the facilities or the government themselves investigate this to correct an issue? Well, that's, a, that's a good point. So they do sometimes. But the interesting thing is, like, let's say that there was a Department of Children's Services, Department of Intellectual Developmental Disabilities, or any other state department that was notified of a complaint at a facility. They could go, open an investigation, make no finding, and close it. We have the ability to go in, do a secondary or our own individual investigation, and come to a different conclusion. There also has been a lot of restructuring where certain state departments used to investigate both tier one and tier two allegations of abuse and neglect. Now they are asking providers to self-police those tier two allegations. And we, of course, have concerns about potential conflicts of interest interfering with impartial investigations in those instances. So you all are the watchdogs to make sure that these investigations are actually happening and that they're held accountable. Yes, ma'am. 
So as you guys know, we're a podcast for youth defenders and hopefully some policymakers are listening to us. So why should we all be aware of these protections and issues? I want to better understand how your work interplays with ours advocating for children in the courtroom. Well, we're very involved in the issues right now related to school to prison pipeline, which probably a lot of your listeners have heard that probably live it to a certain degree and defend against the school to prison pipeline that seems to be flowing pretty freely sometimes. I offer consultation to attorneys representing juveniles if they want a consult with me about the disability piece and how to look at that, what records they might want to look at, what they might want to look for as far as what the school has done or not done to contribute to the issue that the child is having. We are very involved in issues related to making sure that children get the appropriate behavior supports that they need. As many of your listeners probably know, if the school does not provide the supports related to their disabilities that they need, very bad things can happen, such as inappropriate restraint that can harm children, isolation into small spaces for hours on end, referrals to alternative school programs and segregation, calling of school resource officers in onto situations when really police should not be involved, and direct referrals to juvenile court. So it's a continuum. It's a pipeline that is needing plugged up, and we work on educating legislators, policymakers, the Department of Ed on issues and the potential harm to children of certain practices, sometimes certain laws that are bills that are being proposed. And then we also are available to consult with attorneys to talk about the disability piece they may want to bring into their defense. Yeah, you all sound like a wonderful resource for our listeners to know that you all are out there for consults and bouncing ideas off of and determining whether or not something may be an issue or if there's something that a defender needs to investigate further. One thing I will add, under the IDEIA, there is a least restrictive environment part of that that says students with disabilities must be educated in the least restrictive environment, which, of course, the most restrictive environment is a juvenile detention center or something like that, but also they're to be with their typical peers as much as appropriate and as much as possible. So that is a huge piece. And the school to prison pipeline sometimes very clearly circumvents that portion of the law that requires these children with disabilities to be in the least restrictive environment, not the most restrictive environment. Why is it that it is important for children to be in their least restrictive environment? Well, for one thing, we don't have segregated movie theaters. We don't have segregated Walmarts. Kids will grow up. They're going to be out in the community. And if they are segregated in school, they do not learn the skills that they need to function in the community and in the world that they live in. Sometimes even well-meaning parents will want their children protected is the way they look at it. But they need to get the services that they need in the least restrictive environment so they will be ready to go out and face the world and be the people that they want to be and have jobs and belong to book clubs and go to the pool just like everybody else. So when we say segregation, are we meaning students who may have a learning disability being in a different classroom from other kids? Are we talking about them sitting alone in a room? What does that look like? It's the whole gamut. 
sometimes it, it can be just social segregation and they're being treated differently. It's not a physical different place. They're in a classroom, but they become what I used to call the aquarium kids. They're in a typical classroom, but they, they're sat back by the aquarium to entertain them and they're not really part of the group. That's a, that's a form of segregation. In-school suspension is another form of segregation where they are not expelled or suspended, but they're put in a study carol out in the hall or separated out for long periods of time without getting free of public education, without individualized education plans being followed. And then sometimes it can be segregation in an isolation room or segregation at an alternative school or segregation as in we're going to have them brought in front of the court and they're put in a juvenile detention center. I will tell you that I had been at DRT only a few years when we became aware of what we called boxes, the school called rooms. They were three by three built out of plywood in a particular school system where they would segregate the children and isolate them in those what I call boxes. They had swing locks on them. It was horrific. These were fifth graders and there were 12 of these in a particular school system. When I looked to see what their laws or guidelines or rules were about segregation, isolation, and restraint in schools, there wasn't much of anything. There was a memorandum from the Department of Ed that said basically don't isolate or restrain unless it's necessary. And that was it. And having come from a psychiatric setting working at Vanderbilt, if for some reason a person had to be put in a room separate or had to be restrained. There were very strict guidelines. There had to be likelihood of imminent harm. It was totally protection. They had to process with someone while they were there. They had to be with an eyesight of an adult. There were lots of rules. Schools did not have that. So we worked along with some other agencies to educate legislators about the issue in schools because I had a client that was locked in a closet for two full days at school. Terrible things were happening related to isolation and segregation, and there wasn't really any guidance for schools. And so the bill was passed. It's now on the books. It's the Special Education Positive Behavior Supports Act, and it has very strict rules about when you can restrain a child, if you have to isolate or segregate what that has to look like. And those are only for emergencies, which means an imminent threat of physical harm. And only as long as absolutely necessary. And there's reporting requirements related to that, to families, to the State Department of Ed. They have to report every time how many restraints they've had, how many isolations. If there is an isolation room, it cannot be locked or blocked, physically blocked with a structure. It has to be at least uh, 40 square feet. It has to be well lit and heated, air conditioned, all those kind of things. The client I had that was locked in a school closet, it was a janitor's closet. There were hooks, cans of paint. It was terrible. So now that law, and that's something your juvenile defenders may want to look at, is if it's one of those situations where it's escalated at school and then the child winds up referred to court did the school do the proper procedures related to that? That same statute has a provision that says a school may not file a juvenile petition on a child unless and until, well, this is a child with a disability, unless or until they have a manifestation review hearing. And that means they have a meeting where they, the teachers and the parents 
and the administrators discuss, was the behavior something that was a manifestation of their disability? For example, if they have autism, was the child having a meltdown because there was too much noise and they got upset and then so maybe flailed their arms and someone got hit and then they're referred to juvenile court? Well, if that's a manifestation of their disability, they are not supposed to file a juvenile petition. Now, they can report a crime. And if an SRO witnesses something that they feel like is a crime, they can go ahead and file a petition. So I, I was going to ask, how do us defenders, how do we check that that was actually done? Say we are representing a child who we know has an IEP, was referred by the school for maybe getting in a fight with another student. They were referred to the court for one reason or another. How do we make sure that that manifestation hearing took place? Well, the first thing you'll want to do is get a release and get us for all records from the school. And as far as restraint and isolation, they have to fill out a paper every time they do that and keep track of that. So you would ask specifically for those records. Sometimes those are not kept in their special ed file. They're sometimes kept in a different file. You want to ask for all records. You'll want to ask for the records from the manifestation review meeting. Say the manifestation hearing didn't take place. How do you like backpedal that referral to the court? Yes. And I would call it more of a review than a hearing meeting, maybe however you want to look at it. It's, it's a meeting. There's not a judge. It's hard. It is a factor that you could bring to the court's attention that it was not done. And hopefully they would dismiss it. I had a case years ago, this was before this law was even in place, of a child who had an IQ of around 50, and she had never been assessed for assistive technology. She could not communicate, and they had not tried to use any kind of assistive technology where she could push a button to say, you know, bathroom or hungry or something. So communication for her was behavior. Behavior is communication. And she would get upset. She couldn't talk and would sometimes run around the room and flail her arms and she knocked something over or if somebody got in her way and got hurt. The school every time would file a petition and she would be hauled in front of the juvenile court judge who got very frustrated and would send her right back and say, this doesn't belong in my courtroom. So you want to look and see, did the school do what they were supposed to do? And then try to hold the school's feet to the fire and tell them they have to go through the process. We got a school to pay for an expert to come in and assess the child's communication and behavior needs and try to get the child what she needed. And I, I would add on to that, just that you would think about it like if there was no manifestation determination done and the child had an IEP, then your honor that the child doesn't have the mens rea in this instance to have committed disorderly conduct right. or that the school resource officer was out of line when they intervened and restrained the child as opposed to a school staff member who was supposed to do this. So what if, I think Sherry kind of hinted at it, what happens whenever a child who has pretty evident disabilities that have not been assessed, have not had an IEP, an individual education plan put into place, do any of these protections apply to them? Well, I'll let Sherry probably clarify this a little bit more, but the school has an obligation to identify children under child fine and to provide a free appropriate public education. I think it would be great if a public defender or a court-appointed juvenile delinquency defense attorney could do as part of their advocacy to really push that issue with the school system. But if you are lacking in capacity, as we all are these days, there are ways that you can connect the parents of a child you may be 
defending to groups like the STEPS, Support and Training for Exceptional Parents, or send them to resources like Rights Law or other places online and basically get that process started at an accelerated rate. It may produce dividends immediately. It may produce dividends in the long run. I think we've all probably had that client who we have serious suspicions that they probably do qualify for special education services and they're not receiving them. Yes, we have all definitely been there and had to grapple with the frustration that is having a child whose needs have not been served and just in reviewing their records, realizing that they have not had these needs met. This all makes sense to me when we're talking about it in a school setting. And so I really want to dive into what this looks like when a kid is court involved. They may have had a manifestation hearing. They went through the process. They may have been adjudicated and either put in detention or put in a secure facility. What protections apply when they're incarcerated? Well, that's where our access authority can come in. We are in juvenile detention centers now quite a bit. We have shifted our focus over the last year and a half even more toward those facilities. We're doing a little bit less in the schools right now and doing a lot more in the juvenile facilities for our children and youth. What shifted your focus? Well, a few things. Schools took a lot of our time and we did some really good work there, but one of our investigators went into a facility and saw so much lacking. And another thing was COVID and kids being in these facilities and being exposed to COVID and the dangers of that and their families couldn't even come visit because of COVID. So there was no one watching. And I guess the third thing, we really decided we have this access authority that is pretty unique. Maybe we should use that even more than we have been. Yeah. What does that actually mean, access authority? It's what Daniel had discussed, that we can go in and talk to residents. And Daniel may want to talk a little bit more about that, but they have to let us in. It's part of our enacting statutes. And let us talk to residents. Let us get records if we need to, things like that in these facilities. They can't turn us away. So it's not the same as like a John L. attorney. No, it's not. That is correct. We're we're separate from that. Let's see. I wanted to jump into, okay, when a child is in a secure facility or in a detention center and you all are monitoring whether those accommodations have been put into place or if they're following their IEP, what are you all looking for? What what type of issues are you seeing in these facilities? Well, not to get specific right now because we're actively involved in it right this moment, but I will tell you, we do look at whether they're implementing IEPs. Child find is a huge issue. Many children and youth, by the time they get to these facilities, we find out they have never been identified as having a disability, yet the facilities are giving them lots of medications related to behavior and mental health. And, you know, it's obvious that the child is four grade levels behind or whatever. So there's that issue. And these facilities should have schools that provide services for children with disabilities. But it goes well beyond that. We also look at whether there's abuse or neglect happening in the actual facility, even not related to the school portion of it. And are they getting the services that they're supposed to get? Is there any kind of abuse or neglect or something that is putting the child in harm's way? And we've hinted at it a lot, but when we're talking about accommodations and services, 
what are those accommodations and services that are provided to students, say, with a learning disability or blind or with some type of physical disability? What accommodations are they provided with these IEPs and different protections? Basically, a school cannot say, oh, we don't have money for that. We don't do that. If the child needs something in order to access their education, in order to get faith, a free appropriate public education, the school has to provide it. Now, they may not have to provide it necessarily the way the parent wants it, but they have to provide it in a form that gives them faith and access. I mean, it runs the gamut. You know, you look at the child, you get them assessed figure out what they need. It can be everything from an OGCOM device, which is a communication device like I was talking about earlier, which is assistive technology. It might be that the child needs to have access physically to certain classes that they can't physically get to because maybe they're in a wheelchair, so they'll have to build a ramp or something in order for that child to physically access a program. It could be that they have behavior issues, so they need a behavior specialist to come in and do a good, what they call an FBA, which is a functional behavior assessment where they look at the child in a variety of settings and they figure out what the ABCs are for that child. And by that, I mean the antecedent, what occurred right before the behavior. And the B is the behavior, exactly a description of the behavior. And the C is the consequence, what is happening after the behavior that might be reinforcing it or not. And that is a very detailed and should be done well by someone qualified. And then out of that, comes what's called a behavior intervention plan, a BIP, B-I-P. And that is the actual plan for what the school is going to do to help that child with their behavior. It includes reinforcers. It includes lots of things. And it can look very different, but it has to be well done and it has to be implemented appropriately by everyone who basically will be working with that child. So that's a very classic thing that a child would need is an FBA and a BIP for a behavior issue. Do children in secure facilities or in detention centers also have BIPs or FBAs? If they have a disability and they have an IEP and they need one for FAPE, yes, same thing. What we see sometimes in facilities, and we see this in alternative schools too, is that they have maybe a one-size-fits-all behavior program where they earn points or whatever, but they don't individualize. And if that one-size-fits-all does not fit and that child with a disability needs something different in order to get free appropriate public education and address behavior issues, then they have to do that. So, Daniel, I've heard that you've done a little bit of work working on accommodations for probation terms. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So one of the the basic accommodations that applies to both kids in a school setting and then also juveniles or adults who are on probation would be they have a requirement to be provided effective communication. So if the person is deaf, then they need to have a qualified sign language interpreter. But also, if someone has an invisible disability, like a oftentimes invisible a traumatic brain injury, there's a very good resource, Traumatic Brain Injury, a Guide for Probation Officers. It's a 2018 article in the Journal of Trauma and Treatment. And in that, they talk about how individuals with a traumatic brain injury may be ill-equipped to fulfill and maintain compliance with conditions of probation. Because, for instance there is a difficulty with some clients with a TBI with adaptive functioning impairments to follow simple directions and regularly show up on time for appointments. 
I would imagine that this is something, you know, violations of probation are a fairly common occurrence. We often don't have enough legal support for arguments about the barriers that individuals are experiencing. And so utilizing the ADA in this way in the courtroom might be another avenue to help people succeed on probation, to help people reintegrate successfully into communities, and to unclog court dockets. Yeah, that kind of sparked something for me. It makes me think of, you know, some mitigating circumstances that we can discuss in transfer hearings or in dispositions. While perhaps it's not directly applicable, it's something that if you're aware of, if you know the diagnoses, if you know the accommodations that they require and whether or not a manifestation hearing, like you said earlier, Sherry, it's kind of things that we can use in advocating for our clients and making sure they're receiving all of the services they need despite their court involvement. So Sherry, I want to back up because you mentioned something I really am interested in, and that's your work in restraint and isolation. I know you talked a lot about what that work looked like in the schools. How does that apply, you know, in detention centers? I, you know, kid has some either behavioral issues or issues with staying in attention at school. And if they don't want to be in the classroom, they get taken and put in their room in isolation by themselves. Like, what does that do to them? Well, it can, for example, re-traumatize if that child has experienced any kind of serious trauma, and many of them have. That certainly doesn't solve the problem. Special Education Positive Behavior Supports Act applies to public schools does not apply to different other kinds of programs and private settings and things like that, just to public schools. However, you also cannot punish a child for their disability. The ADA and Section 504 of the Rehab Act require, you cannot discriminate. I would argue that these facilities need to make sure they have thoroughly assessed children who are suspected of having disabilities and looking at whether their consequences or whatever you want to call it are punishment or are for their disability for something that's disability related. And that could definitely violate some of our protections and statutes for protection against that. And so I would argue the other thing that is a concern to us is the use of prone restraint in facilities, prone restraint, face down on the floor restraint. It can be very dangerous. It can restrict breathing. Some programs use that, some do not. There's other types of restraint in addition to prone restraint, but there are facilities that still use prone restraint, a lot do. And we are right now really looking at that issue. There are Positive Behavior Supports Act for schools doesn't outright ban prone restraint, but it does have a provision that if restraint does have to be used in an emergency, it cannot be one that restricts breathing. I think you can make a leap that there's a likelihood that prone restraint could restrict breathing. I've had clients in the past who had petechia after a restraint, which is red striations from lack of oxygen from the restraint. I've had clients in the past who a teacher's aide or other concerned person informed the parent, did you know your child was face down on the floor with adults on them for four hours today? You know, things like that. And particularly before the act passed, there was no reporting requirement to parents when a child had been in restraint. Now they have to report restraints unless it's something that is 
in their IEP that allows like just a few minutes of restraint and the parent agrees they don't have to know every time it happens. So I would argue that there are some things, even though you may not have the exact same thing public schools have that uh, help protect children from dangerous restraint and isolation. You mentioned punishing children for their disabilities. And what do you mean by that? Like a child who is behind in reading due to a learning disability, like they're not punishing a child for that. What do you mean? Well, like you have a child who has meltdowns, they have autism, they have meltdowns, and they get punished when they have a meltdown. But yet there were not things done to help prevent the meltdown, like a good functional behavior assessment to figure out how to ward those off. So they're punished for having autism and a meltdown. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tourette's, people know what Tourette's is, where there's some inhibitions that uh, are not there. So they may blurt out something that's very inappropriate or threatening, but they don't mean it. They cannot stop it. It comes out. Okay. And then they get punished every time that happens, but they can't help it. So that's kind of, that ties into the statistic that I read at the very beginning of this episode, mentioning that there's such a disproportionate number of children with disabilities in the court system. And based on the data and what you're saying, it appears that may be the cause. What do you think? And in some cases, it may be. Okay, so one of the other topics I wanted to talk about was with either children being in facilities and stepping down into probation. Daniel talked about the accommodations that are provided in probation. What about the accommodations in placements in general? Like I read a report that there was an issue, I think, in West Virginia where the Department of Justice investigated a facility or or the general system. And it revealed that a lot of these kids with mental health disorders were being sent to institutions like eight hours away or across the country from their families simply because they didn't have resources closer by. So in Tennessee, I see a lot of court-involved kids placed all over the state or somewhere else because DCS doesn't have enough options locally. And it seems to apply a lot to children who either have mental health disorders or different disabilities. Do you guys monitor that? Do you see that as an issue? We do see that as an issue. We have seen lots of kids being sent down to our facility in Georgia. Sometimes, like you said, across the state. Sometimes they get moved back and forth across the state far away from families. To me, it seems very difficult to effectively treat and help a child who is in one of these facilities if they can't integrate the family or the people who they love and care about in the process. And that's awfully hard to do far away. So it is an ongoing problem. I do see it as an issue. Yeah. And I think it implicates LC versus or Olmstead versus LC, United States Supreme Court case that requires that public entities must provide community-based services to people with disabilities where such services are appropriate, where they don't oppose the community-based services, and where those services can be reasonably accommodated. I know you've had clients that have been sent to the other end of Tennessee when their family members are very local. They might get a $20 gift certificate for gas that's not going to get them halfway across the state. It's those kind of in the community, least restrictive environment services that are important, but also we're talking about network adequacy or network inadequacy. And with the Olmstead decision, we still really see a unfunded mandate. The Supreme Court says you have to have these systems in place, but have state and federal legislators really stepped up to ensure that those services 
are in place. Another issue where we see a lack of facilities or supports is children who have several diagnoses. For example, I've had clients who had schizophrenia and were deaf, okay? And there's there's just nowhere. There's places that will help kids who have mental illness, and there's places that may help people with, who are deaf. But when you have both together or some other dual diagnosis, that can make things very tricky and difficult to find help for those young people and adults. What have you all done in situations like that when there are no placements with DCS or appropriate, you know, community services close by for dual diagnosis children like that? Well, it's kind of piecemeal, actually. You, you do what you can. In one case, for example, we wound up getting a young man placed in a facility that dealt with his mental health issues, but he had an interpreter for part of the time. And we were able to connect him with actually a therapist through remote that signed. So he didn't even have to go through an interpreter for his mental health therapy. He got to talk directly with sign language to his psychologist. So you just kind of have to figure out what's the best way to go. You may have to piece things together and you'll get a lot of deer and headlight looks when you say, how are we going to address all these needs? And it sounds like a lot of the times these children need someone who will stand up and not go by the status quo, who demand that these things be met. That's right. Yeah, and no, I was just going to point out that sometimes we are successful when people contact us and there is a no placement option. We will elevate and escalate the concern to state partners. And sometimes those state partners are very responsive to us and we're able to get that person placed. We do have to be creative and Sometimes our networks are not adequate. So in wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you guys if a defender here in Tennessee wanted to get in touch with you guys, how do we do that to help, you know, with a consult on a case or something? Well, uh, Disability Rights Tennessee, first of all, our services are free. So there's no cost for our services. Sherry and myself and other attorneys routinely provide technical assistance, whether that's a phone call, some research, a letter to attorneys in various different proceedings, criminal or civil. You can reach us at gethelp at disabilityrightstn.org. And then we also have a 1-800 number. One other thing that you should know for your listeners that are outside of the state of Tennessee is that there's a PNA system in every state and just go to your favorite search engines, type your state's name and then protection and advocacy system and it should come up. Disability rights phone number is one 800 3421660. Thank you. Yes, I know that I want all of our listeners to know how to get in contact with you guys and how to find their local resources. Are there other organizations or resources that you all would recommend us defenders reference in order to stay abreast of all the issues with the court involved kids that may have disabilities? If you have people listening who really are very interested in getting a little bit deeper into the special ed aspect and the disability aspect, go to this website for STEP that uh, Daniel mentioned. Just type in STEP Tennessee Special Education. You'll find their website. They have great materials. They have free trainings. They're federally funded program. You can learn a whole lot about special ed. Also, they can refer families to STEP. They have webinar classes. I think they still may still do some in-person. That may be kind of on hold because of COVID right now. But there's lots of good information. Another really good website is understood.org. 
parentsunderstood.org. It is an excellent website that is also very parent and family friendly that helps walk through the process of special ed. Yeah, I have been to that website and it is so helpful. I can attest that it has helped me understand so many different aspects of the processes that we've been talking about today. So highly recommend that one to all of our listeners. And just so everybody knows, I'll be posting all of these resources on our website so you can easily click through and get to some of those that we've been talking about. I also wanted to mention that ARC of Tennessee has a family engagement program that is free for the families that they may want to get involved with. There's the Volunteer Advocacy Project. There's advocates that go through 30 hours of training of how to assist families in IEP meetings, and they're all over the state, some of these trained folks that can help families out. And there's also the COFA, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, which does some really in-depth special education training and has a nationwide referral network. Oh, fantastic organization. Yes. So I guess one of my last questions is to wrap everything up. How do frontline defenders, using everything that we've talked about, using the ADA, Section 504, Olmstead, like you mentioned, Daniel, how do we use this to advocate for fair treatment for kids who may be in juvenile justice placements, schools, community agencies? How can we assist in making sure that their needs are met? Well, I mean, like I said, go to step training and they'll help you understand the rights that are entitled. I mean, there's due process hearings for special ed. That is one option. Administrative complaints with the Tennessee Department of Ed can be filed. Office of Civil Rights complaints with the U.S. Department of Education can be filed. The most important thing is communication in IEP meetings, getting everything in writing, asking for things in writing. You can tape those IEP meetings as long as you let the school know ahead of time, you're recording them. So hopefully that's what I think that's what you were asking. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of our listeners, you know, all different walks of life. Some may be policymakers, some may be public defenders, some may be private defense attorneys and private practitioners. For those that are public defenders, I know an issue that a lot of them have encountered or a lot of us have encountered is having our hands a little bit tied in terms of literally doing that advocacy where we can go into an IEP meeting and advocate for those needs. Is there a referral source that you all would recommend, at least here in Tennessee, for our defenders who may or may not have the capacity to do either that training or maybe statutorily prevented from doing those things due to their position with the government? The step that we gave you and the volunteer advocacy project, those people go to IEP meetings sometimes, quite a bit. What about if there is like a really egregious violation where, you know, a due process hearing or something might need to take place? There's not a lot of lawyers that do this work. I will tell you that right up front. It's time consuming. A lot of people, as far as private bar, it's hard to make money at it. You do have fee shifting provisions and due process hearings. But, you know, if you are the prevailing party, you can't get the attorney's fees back for the family. These take a lot of time, these cases, and there's a lot of records review. There are a few private attorneys that do these cases, but there's not a lot of people out there that do the due process hearings. Good to know. So it's really important for our defenders to understand it is. some of the nuances of this so they can be familiar enough that they can at least step in and do as much as they can. But do know that if you don't get it resolved at a lower level and it, it, get, it gets escalated to a due process, 
you will have to overcome the hurdle of the halo effect of special educators. The school system is going to have a whole bunch of experts, people that are have masters and PhDs that many of whom may know that child and are all going to be a lot of times singing from the same song sheet, so to speak. You on the other side, you've got to scratch around and find an expert, you know, that's willing to go up against the school system, which may or may not be willing to refer kids to their practice anymore or whatever if they're a private practitioner after they go up against school systems. So it's an uphill battle on the litigation piece. A lot of cases do settle. There's a requirement for a resolution meeting within 15 days after you file due process, and they do settle sometimes. But just know that there's a lot of hurdles going up against the school system. I'm not saying don't do it, just that if there are lower level ways to do it, OCR complaints and admin complaints don't require a hearing that look at all your options. Fantastic. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I missed. Do you guys think of anything? I mean, other, I'm, I'm going to la- ask you my last question about your message to the world, but was there anything that I missed? It's been very good. It's been fine. Very thorough. Yes. Absolutely. So just one last question for you guys. It's been great to talk to you guys. So if you had one last message to get out to the world of youth defenders, what would it be? I would say think about school records as an ample ground for discovery. Think about reasonable accommodations in the courtroom and at every point where your client touches the court process. Think about them in probation. Olmstead is really, it's underfunded, not unfunded, but it is definitely underfunded. And think about your state resource, your PA system. Call us. We can provide technical assistance and provide resources like tnstep.org or other local advocacy groups. Keep them available for parents. That way they can get help even when they're not directly in contact with the court system. I agree with everything he said. And the only thing I would add to that is always keep this focused on the child. If you go to mediation. For example, you can request mediation if there's a dispute and it's less adversarial. Anybody that's done mediation in any realm, it's kind of the same thing. You have a mediator from the Secretary of State's office. And when I go to mediation, I always take a photograph, have the parent bring a photograph in a frame of the child, set it in the middle of the table and introduce that child to everyone again. And if it gets off track, I tell the parent, take the high road say, you know what, we're not here to talk about how mad you are at me or I'm at you. We're here to talk about Jimmy, you know, and here's Jimmy. And I would say that in court or in mediation or in IEP meetings, the attorney and the parent take the high road and keep everybody focused back on that child and give that child a story and a face. I love that closing message. Well, thank you, guys. No problem. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you very much. We enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Defenders, thanks for joining us. We hope this podcast was as inspiring to you as it was for us. We hope to drop a new episode as often as possible. In Defense of Children podcast aims to bring these informative conversations with top thought leaders and experts in our field so defenders can listen whenever and wherever they are. We hope to build a community and become the best lawyers we can be for these kids. If you have ideas for episodes you want to listen to, drop us an email at info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org. That's info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org, just like it's spelled, and we will do our best to set it up. 